Hello and welcome to a Carrick Institute podcast. Today's topic is eye movement and development of the nervous system as recorded by Professor Frederick Carrick. For other podcasts and information about our clinical neuroscience programs, please visit carrickinstitute.com. Our recent paper on the treatment of acute middle cerebral artery ischemic stroke using eye movement uh, therapies has really got us a lot of attention. And specifically, the attention has centered around the concept of a human cognition and thinking. And we realize that the cognitive control of behavior can be impaired in stroke and that eye movement therapy appears to affect the areas of the brain that are associated with cognitive types of processes. So we've had some comments in regards to the question of how does this cognitive control of behavior just evolve? We, uh, we see that kids are a little bit different than adolescents or different than adults. And, and then after stroke, we have changes again. So the important uh, concept that we understand specifically in regards to behavioral control systems is that they usually get better. Uh, in other words, when you're a kid, you may act out or have tantrums or other sorts of things, but they should improve uh, during adolescence. And when they improve, they're going to be improving in parallel with the maturational processes of the brain. And this includes all of the stuff that you know about, such as myelination and pruning of synapses and all of these things will happen to allow us to promote a different type of circuitry that supports uh, the control of behavior from your brain uh, downwards. So we also realize that if things don't go correctly in regards to our maturational processes that you may have behavioral problems and the behavioral problems are areas that I'm presently investigating with my team at the University of Cambridge in the UK at the Bedfordshire Sire um, Center for Mental Health uh, Research. So we're interested in schizophrenia, disorders of mood, bipolarity, and a variety of other types of common, uh, common uh, presentations that seem to, to give people a vulnerability to behavioral types of controls. So why say this? Well, we say this because uh, understanding the movement of the eyes really allows us to make some some very, very uh, profound uh, guiding uh, assessments of things that happen in brain circuitry. So when we look at eyes, we're going to look at the a development of a variety of things from the ability simply to look at something to being able to follow something that's moving and then to move your eyes quickly from target to target and uh, onward. So the, the visual system or the system that allows us to look at these uh, eye movements are very, very specific for areas of the brain. And there's a whole lot of literature right now uh, coming up to understanding of uh, very simple movements to very complex movements such as anti, uh, anti-saccades. So we really think that we can understand some developmental basis of uh, disorders of, uh, of behavior and, and certainly mental health, and also that we have the tools to be able to make changes without drugs or surgery. So when we look at psychopathological processes, what do we know? Well, the answer is, is that we really don't know why some people develop these uh, psychopathological processes and others don't. So when we look at common conditions that we see, uh, bipolar disorders, people that are a little anxious, uh, schizophrenia, we do realize historically that these syndromes do emerge uh, during, uh, during youth or during adolescence. And it, it, what happens is, is that these kids are largely what we consider to be normal and then all of a sudden things change. We also realize that we've got this whole spectrum uh, that people have had attention to with the ADHD disorders as well as movement disorders such as Tourette's or even autism that are 
are always present very early uh, in, in kids, but they show a unique progression as the child develops through uh, adulthood. So there, there is a neurobiological basis and there is an understanding of development that would allow us as clinicians to be able to tag something, look at it earlier, and we hope to develop some strategies that can really make a, a, great, uh, a great difference. So in our field, everyone's got a different specialty, but we really do very well by understanding eye movement tasks. And certainly these tasks are complex and it allows us to understand the brain much better, but it also allows us to understand the development of behavior. It's very, very important when we look at neuropsychiatric disorders uh, to, to understand the underlying neurobiology and eye movements can really help us. We know that um, movement of the eyes are very sensitive to lesions in the, in the anterior portions of the brain that are considered to be associated with executive functionality. And, and, and there's a whole uh, lot of neurodevelopmental uh, bases that involve the frontal lobe and their connections and therefore we expect to see and we do see changes in uh, eye movements when we have changes in executive functionality and specifically we see changes in the way that people will move their eyes quickly to different targets or their volitional control uh, of moving their eyes and these are very very uh, sensitive biomarkers in uh, psychopathological uh, disorders and it's pretty commonplace now to think that when we have abnormalities in the abilities to uh, generate volitional saccades that there is probably an abnormality in the circuitry that is uh, supporting or controlled by or with or a corollary to executive control uh, mechanisms. So when you look at uh, a young child and they grow up to adolescence and to adulthood, we need to realize that eye movement performance can give us some very, very good windows that can look not only as biomarkers for disorders, but biomarkers to tell us if, if our treatment is doing uh, markedly better. So there's a variety of eye movement tasks that we see that are um, occurring in parallel to the, the evolution of one's brain or one's brain uh, development. And we realize that in order to have a mature brain that you need to have a certain substrate that needs to get into another substrate, another substrate, and on and on and on. So when we look at the um, eye movements, we realize that these are really ideal uh, for the clinician and for neuroscientists to to look at not only volitional behavior but also reflexogenic behavior. If you see a target come up, uh, do the people follow it? What happens in regards to uh, different activities of um, oh uh, optokinetic activities, or what happens when you're riding or when you're moving, uh, and onwards and onwards. So uh, when we look at um, eye movements themselves from, oh boy, you know, the mid 80s up to the present time, people have been looking at them and measuring them with zealousy. And especially when we look at the brain based of higher cognitive processes. And we certainly did this in our recent paper uh, published in uh, Frontiers Neurology in the ophthalmology uh, section. So we know what happens in the normal population or controls and we know what happens in people that have cognitive uh, disorders. And we know that eye movements are compromised in psychiatric illness. And uh, we've got just a whole beautiful, um, we say a smorgasbord of things that we can do. So basically, how are you as a clinician going to look at eye movements and say, is there something happening in that person's brain? Well, the simple uh, answer to that is not so simple, but basically we dual task them or we add demands uh, to them while they're doing an individual task. Cognitive 
types of uh, demands to uh, to eye movement. So that what we we need to do is realize that. Uh, anything that involves a, a planned response mm. or something like an anti-saccade is really going to show pathology when the executive functionality of the brain doesn't work so, so very, very well. So the kids, and we're doing a very major study with our colleagues from France here at Carrick Institute. Uh, we're very excited to, to do this. Um, and eye movements are, are easy to measure in kids at the bedside, but also they like uh, wearing these little goggles and doing things. And the performance of these tasks is is not hard, even on impaired children, because we can use different types of uh, ticklers, if you would, to, to give them some verbal types of... Uh, coaching or different types of uh, uh, targets that are sort of sort of fun. Now when we look at the stimulus response relationships, in other words, you see a target, you move to the new target, what are the latencies, what are the measurements? Well, these are direct biomarkers and they're markedly different to uh, individual um, Oh, DSM-5 or pen and paper types of types of tests, which are really uh, sort of an extrapolation of function. These responses of eye movements are extremely precise, and they can give us, I think, uh, a lot more information than you can in any other type of of test. And we also know that we've got some animal studies that help us a lot in this activity down from the single cell to some global types of uh, network activities. There's a lot of information in the neuroanatomical or the biochemical uh, literature and the visual system has been a popular system that has been measured, you know, almost from the beginning of time. The, the, uh, the eyes to the soul of an individual uh, person. So we have long-term established links between behavioral processes and the human brain. We know uh, what happens to the eye movements when you've got a lesion in your brain, and we know what happens when you're, you're pretty good. So we also know that we've got certain networks that are associated specifically with eye movements. Uh, when we look at fast eye movements or slow eye movements, we can invoke uh, different areas of the brain. Uh, certainly the frontal eye fields are well known uh, to individuals that want to move their eyes very quickly to the other side or the side contralateral to the active frontal eye field. We also have supplementary eye fields and uh, the posterior parietal cortex very much involved in grabbing a target or following it, and, and also the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is an area that my team uh, likes to, to activate in transcranial magnetic types of uh, stimulation studies that are associated uh, with, uh, with depression. But also, we, we understand the role of the superior colliculus, and uh, generating express saccades. We know that the basal ganglia, specifically the nigra, uh, tonically inhibits the superior collicular activation of neurons, they call them omnipause neurons, that would inhibit the generation of saccades. So that when people have lesions in areas of the brain, they may have uh, square wave jerks or other types of things that can, that can pop up. But right now, we've got some beautiful imaging of the brain when people are doing complex tasks. And my team has done that as well. And we find that we can have the people move their eyes very specifically to combinations of fast eye movements and slow eye movements. And we can very specifically activate areas of the brain uh, themselves. Now, we look at the uh, types of eye movements that would be associated with human behavior. And you know what this means if you see something that you like, it could be a person, it could be a hamburger, uh, it could be a piece of pizza, it could be a beer. And, and we'll look at, you know, people's eyes will go to that individual target. We just had a Mardi Gras 
uh, in our village here. And it's just crazy the things that you're going to be saccading to on these individual floats. So let's look at um, the basic aspects. You've got to be able to look at something and hold that gaze and then follow it if it moves. And when you're looking at following something, it's pretty obvious to you that you need to have some predictability. If you look at something and you're gonna watch it move, is it gonna to move to the right? Is it gonna to move to the left when the bird is flying? Does it change to the left? Does it change its circuitry? Does it dive? Uh, it's pretty amazing and, and we have a thrill of doing this as you see with air shows or even car races and, and things like that. So before we can look at predictability, we need to be able to grab uh, grab the object that we're going to see and this involves some cognitive types of controls. In other words, look at this target. Don't go looking around at something else. Just look at this target uh, and, and see what's happening. So uh, from gaze fixation to pursuits and then ultimately to psychotic tasks, uh, we've got a whole load of stuff that comes on, whether it be a saccade that uh, you're going to look very quickly at something that comes into your vision. Uh, such as a reflexive uh, nature where we bring the fovea onto the individual target. Then we start over again with new gaze control and then a new prediction of where that target is going to be going. So if you look at your patients and we start to examine them in these constructs, you can very specifically give them a cognitive load uh, to their eye movement tasks. And these are things that we're going to be doing at our uh, physical exam or neurological examination module, uh, which is coming up very soon and is going to be very exciting, I think, to allow people to learn how to make observations that they didn't learn from a book uh, and, and something that you learn over decades of, of personal interplay with patients and societies. And when we look at cognitive loading, one of the, the greatest loads that we can utilize is uh, the loads of the anti-saccade, where we give the person a target and say, but don't look at that target, go exactly to the opposite area. And so what happens is you need to be able to suppress a saccadic response and then, and then generate another response that is got to be modulated by integrating all of the fantastic neurobiology that allows you to uh, engage the frontal and brainstem activities associated with the eye uh, movements. There's also a delayed response that we see in different tasking of eye movements that uh, you see more in the literature uh, specific to um, single cell studies that are done in in primates and in other life forms. We, we can't do these in, in humans, but basically uh, these studies or the ocular motor delayed uh, response task, they require the, um, the animal to have a fast eye movement that's guided only by the memory of a target that they saw before. And this, uh, of course, is subserved by a very uh, wide distribution of the frontal parietal striatal network as you can imagine where is the target in space more parietal engage it frontal and then the striatal aspects of the uh, not only the visual striatal system but of the the neo uh, striatum so we've got a lot of information on those activities and we try to extrapolate that into our complex uh, complex movements so let's look at um, at kids and let's look at how the brain matures. And we're gonna see at the International Society for Clinical Neurology Symposium this year in October of 2016, uh, we're gonna have Charlie Popper there, who's one of the most famous child psychiatrists in the world. And he's gonna be talking about the influences of environment and learning and the, the types of things in nutrition or micronutrients that make a difference in brain maturation and cognitive control and on and on. If you saw him last year, you saw how brilliant he was. So they cut to the chase and look at say, what can we use uh, in, in our own clinical experience? We have to realize that there are changes in the brain 
through the developing years and then they keep on going and these changes are such that the brain becomes specialized to allow the individual to become a little more expert in uh, their individual uh, environment depending upon where they're living and what the things they have to do what their mom and dad is like what the teachers like you know where the candy bowl is and and all of these things so if we can understand how the brain develops we can understand how it doesn't develop because we've got biomarkers of eye movements throughout this whole uh, th this whole uh, deal now we know that when you're you look at a little kid that their head is smaller than than most of us uh, if, if you're putting a hat on yourself so as the skull thickens as we grow uh, people say well you know your brain is actually uh, getting getting bigger but in fact the the gross uh, morphological attitude of the brain is really in place very very early and the degree of its folding of its weight of its specialization uh, is pretty well there uh, when you're a kid and then when we look at brain development the key processes that are going to allow that that art of of this beautiful brain um, is is really the sculpting that occurs and that sculpting occurs uh, with uh, myelinization of pruning of this synapse and the other synapse that will enhance the processing of uh, synaptic activity and and really uh, help and contribute to the cognitive control of behavior so that you just don't do the things that your your mind thinks you should do and this is sort of evident in the in the presidential debates between candidates my lord so what happens we're, we're we by the time we're born we've lost half of the neuronal population in our brains and then the stuff that we've got left starts to become pruned uh, because we've got more than we need and um, good to you know play different language tapes or things to your kids when they're growing so they don't lose uh, certain areas of the brain that would respond to different phenomes but in, but in any event you've got more than you need so you got to prune them up and uh, the the environmental activation that you see is going to dictate the the amount of pruning and then when you you lose things that are, that are not essential it's really not a big deal and you're going to result in a neural system that is going to be able to support better uh, computations with a more exacting regional uh, circuitry and we know a, a whole load about that now uh, specifically because of the literature of uh, of structural neuroimaging so we know that we lose gray matter uh, through throughout the cortical association areas and the loss of this gray matter really occurs in the frontal and temporal regions it's really hard to imagine for some people that kids have got greater uh, frontal gray matter than than we do we lose it we prune it and when we reduce this gray matter we also reduce uh, the uh, gray matter quantum in the in the basal uh, basal ganglia so when we look at this frontal lobe sort of demise or pruning then we're going to realize we're going to have changes in eye movements and when we look at the the brain itself we're going to say that the uh, the development of areas of the brain is really development that is associated with the uh, loss of, uh, of gray matter. Now there's been some very interesting activities specifically by Gogte and in that group published back in 2004 where they looked at the thinning of gray matter associated with, with maturation. So as well as the thinning of gray matter, we also have uh, increased myelination and increased myelination is going to increase your speed of neurotransmission and that increased speed is going to allow for areas of the brain that are far apart to integrate a lot more uh, quickly than before and then more uh, efficiently to develop a, a complex behavioral circuitry that is really dependent upon 
an underlying cytoarchitectonic, uh, functional, uh, physical, uh, integrated uh, types of uh, systems. So different areas of the brain will myelinate at different times and uh, sometimes the girls myelinate before the the boy. Now, uh, now uh, what areas of the brain are going to myelinate or should myelinate better? Well, the brain stem, those vital areas, they really have got to myelinate uh, quicker than anything else. Those are the target areas. But also the neocortical uh, substrates in the brain will continue to myelinate uh, even into uh, our adult uh, areas. And uh, why would things continue to myelinate? Well, maybe because the amount of um, synaptic connections has been pruned and lost and is dependent upon increasing signal to get to those individual areas. So there's a lot of information that is coming along now by looking at the individual white matter tracks and looking at integration. Uh, these are the diffusion tensor imaging studies and uh, Richard Rovin showed some beautiful aspects of this at his presentation at the ISCN in Orlando. So look for some very exciting uh, neuroimaging in this area, but also functionally. So what do we find? Um, gray matter thinning, uh, we know that occurs so that we lose gray matter, but myelination is, um, is such that it, it, it doesn't occur last in the frontal regions, but uh, throughout the brain itself. So we, we realize that we can see these characteristics of late development that continue uh, continue on in all of us. So what does this mean? What are those little take-home points in, in regards to this, uh, this type of activity? If we look at um, the development of the nervous system, then we have to realize that the ability to to move our eyes is going to be dependent upon the brain systems that are crucial for exerting control over uh, over the eyes and that uh, system that's immature is going to be able to exert some control but maybe not consistently and we may have some some different problems uh, you know from time to time so I think what would be really super for us is to uh, understand the development of, uh, of the different systems that we look at clinically. And th these are really specific into looking at um, uh, smooth pursuits and saccades. We love them. Uh, we, we use them with optokinetic reflexogenic activity, the slow one being a pursuit, the fast one being a saccade. So if we look at smooth pursuit, we're going to say, if you had to go and, and quantify and say, what's the difference between smooth pursuits and saccades? Uh, you would probably say something like, well, the smooth pursuit allows us to follow a target that's moving and it would therefore allow us to uh, get to where we're going to go without being, um, you know, smacked by a person that's running in the other uh, direction. It's going to allow us to fovealize. It's not only going to allow us to avoid getting hit by things, but it's going to allow us to to uh, be able to participate in sports and um, you know throw the horseshoe, catch the ball, and all of those uh, different sorts of things. So the smooth pursuit um, uses slow movements, and the fast psychotic activity uses uh, fast movements. So when we look at smooth pursuits that are not efficient, then we need to realize that, well, how do you make it efficient? You're going to have compensation and that compensation is usually in the form of a fast eye movement or a saccade. And the fast eye movement, again, must have some predictability because it's, it needs to be able to approximate the speed of the target that you are trying to uh, pursue. So this is pretty darn uh, exciting. And we've got a whole load of neuroimaging and single cell studies that dictate that the, the, um, the areas of the brain that are associated with pursuits are right next to the areas 
that are associated with saccades. And you all know that when you look at people pursuing that we can check off and measure the number of saccades you know, per minute and, and all of these other uh, different areas. So what are the areas that are related uh, both physically and clinically to pursuits? Well, we know the cerebellum is intimate in regards to following movement targets and especially the area in the flocculonodulus of the cerebellum, as well as the, the dorsal portion of the vermis and the caudal portion of the vestigial uh, nucleus. And you all know about dysmetria and these types of areas that are associated uh, with this activity or dorsal vermal areas. Uh, you can become a little hypo uh, metric if, if you have a lesion there, whereas if you look at the fastigium, uh, for instance, you become hypermetric. So we also realize that we've got memory aspects involved and the medial uh, superior temporal cortical area is also involved in pursuits and the frontal eye fields, or at least the caudal portions of them and the supplementary eye fields, the dorsal lateral pontine nucleus, the nucleus reticularis tegmenti pontus, uh, all are involved in pursuits. A whole load of area of brain, but also we need to recruit uh, information from the visual cortex or this V5 uh, area. Now, when you see a child um, that comes out of, uh, you know, out of the mother's womb and it's all really super, super great, their brain is not developed so that their pursuit mechanisms are not so mature. So we know that we've got improvements in this during the first 12 months of life. And in fact, uh, if you take a kid, you take your optokinetic tape or your iPhone, uh, you can see that the, a child just a couple of weeks old can track a moving, uh, moving object um, using the OPK. They're not good enough to have smooth pursuit because they don't have the ability to predict where the target is going to is going to go. So what are you going to see with a kid? Well, you're going to see that when they are um, tracking a, a moving target, since the pursuit mechanism or the constraint of predictability is not there, then they pursue by a whole load of psychotic uh, movements. Now, when we look at the ability of a kid to be able to follow a target with smooth pursuit uh, without having all of these individual saccades, uh, it's going to take them some maturation of their brain. And as they get older, a couple of months older, um, their pursuit gets better, but it's terribly, terribly inaccurate. So we're going to have these improvements of the pursuit mechanisms throughout infancy, which means to say the ability to track faster moving stimuli. When we look at brain injured patients, we do slow pursuits and we go faster and faster. And then we compare your ability to generate slow following versus uh, fast following. And then if we go back to the kids as they develop and they can start to follow things with this predictability, they also uh, start to develop the ability to coordinate their head movements and have uh, individual uh, gaze shifts. And this should be pretty well tight uh, by the time they're about seven months of, of age. Now, we know that the ability to adjust for an aberrant pursuit by using saccades are really you know, pretty well developed by the time the kid is uh, six months of, of age. And they just continue to get better and better throughout childhood and adolescence and this getting better is really sort of hard wrapped with the ability to predict the movement, where it's going to be, uh, that's going to uh, do things a little bit better. So when is your child gonna be able to start uh, predicting gaze tracking? In other words, you're gonna know that a kid can predict uh, where things are gonna be if their amount of psychotic intrusions decreases. So. When, when you see someone that has consistent, um, oh boy, uh, ability to follow something smoothly without any types of psychotic intrusions, you can say, wow, things are pretty well, uh, pretty well knit, this is great. 
but it's not gonna occur before eight months of age. So be very careful with your therapies and things and realize what you're actually going to do. So we're gonna say that uh, infants are gonna be not great at really following a, a moving target. They're just not gonna be great. We know that this movement, um, uh, movement of the eyes to follow a target is dependent upon predictability, right? Predictability. Now, when we look at predictability, we need to be able to measure gain. And gain, of course, is a measurement, uh, for instance, the velocity of the target divided by the velocity of the eyes. Now, when we look at pursuit gain, you can really use this to look at the accuracy of the pursuit mechanism independent of the catch-up saccades. So the integrity of the pursuit system can be measured independent from the saccadic system, even though you're going to have saccadic intrusions. And we've known that for almost 20 years. Again, Lee and Z uh, pioneered this type of work and reported it very well. Get their new text, the fifth and the last in this series, at least by these two uh, scholars. Now. What about the, um, what about saccades in kids? Well, you know, they've got saccades. Kids can have fast eye movements, but they get better uh, as, they, as they get older and sometimes into the mid-adolescent uh, area. Now, when we look at pursuits, you're gonna say, boy, you need to have predictability, but saccades, you really don't. Here's the target, boom, uh, go to it. Now, when we look at, um, young kids, you know, well, let's say not so young, not infants, but kids that are around nine to 11 years old, they have uh, asymmetric eye movements if they're looking at upward pursuit eye movements. And this is really important because these are one of the things that we see in adults uh, that injure their heads. They get these abnormal upward pursuits. And this gives us an immaturity in, of course, the organization of the, uh, the vestibular integration of the flocular nodular area, but they also uh, show us that we've got some immaturities in the uh, supplementary eye fields that allow for the cancellation of downward vestibulo-ocular reflexes. We need to defeat the VOR in order to, to move things up. And as you move up, your head moves forward. And as your head moves forward, you activate semicircular canals and that causes a whole load of potential uh, contamination. So the, the one thing that you're gonna be able to say is that when you examine your patients or your young people, that the establishment of, uh, of good pursuit tracking, you know, no psychotic intrusions, then you're gonna say at that time, you have got integration of the brain and the cerebellum that would support an accurate predictive process. And that's a pretty powerful statement. And if you don't see it, you can uh, say the reverse. Now, we're gonna say that the circuitry must be long range and must be very, very complex. And when we look at this type of activity, uh, the literature is very, very rich in association with the psychopathological processes that come in the young person and mental health disorders, especially uh, schizophrenia. Or to say it different, if you have a schizophrenic history in the family, you want to look very, very carefully at the evolution of the ability of the, uh, of the young child or young adult to be able to have pursuits mm -hmm. that are devoid of intrusion. And that can be very exciting. It can also uh, be not so exciting if you find that in a history of, um, of schizophrenia or a history of uh, mental health disease that the areas of the brain that are associated with executive functionality that are needed to be able to predict things aren't working well. You go, wow, we've got a phenotype here, but also we've got mechanisms that we can change that. So in order to change things and to be able to follow pursuits, you've got to come back to the ability to be able to look at something and grab it or hold that 
visual stimulus in your fovea without a uh, without a, a drift. Well, we like to think of it romantically as clinicians as um, related to the pursuit system where we'd say that fixation must be a part of the pursuit system because in order to pursue something, you need to be able to fixate it and onwards and onwards and onwards. So um, are they one and the same or are they different? Well, both statements are sort of true. There's differences, but there's similarities. So the one thing that I think that uh, naive clinicians have problems with, and I'm saying naive, not that they're naive, but that they're not experienced in, in seeing a lot of patients or people that may be trained by books, if you would, that if you're looking at something, we tend to say, boy, there's no movement, that this must be passive. But in fact, the ability not to move is such a very active, dynamic process. And I think if you can embrace that phenomenology, that statement, that beauty, uh, that you are going to to be, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of where you were uh, before. So we need to be able to focus our attention, but we need to be able to inhibit movements that would take our phobias off of the individual uh, target. Now, we need to be able to lock our intention onto something so that we don't have an attention deficit. And therefore, you're going to find the kids that have attention deficits can't lock onto things and their eyes are going to be moving. And so we're going to be saying that uh, these kids are going to have saccades when they should be fixating and their saccades will be to different targets um, and that the movement would be an exponent of a failure of inhibition. So we are going to say that the ability to fixate doesn't mean that you're not going to have a bunch of little micro saccades that are around the target itself. Uh, that you know the, the eyes are always going to be going to be moving and doing a variety of different things. So the ability to look at something is present very early in in life, but the control of this fixation continues to improve uh, through adolescence, and the results indicate that the the amount of saccades are going to decrease um, as you get older and as your brain gets a little bit better. So what are we going to look at here when we look at the the amount of oh attention and things like that? Well the one thing we're going to look at is the fact that you can tell when my phone is ringing and that sort of knocks my attention off uh, a, a little, uh, a little bit. So, um, the ability to mean it, uh, to, to grab things in uh, and fixate it really equivalents uh, um, is equivalent to the ability to inhibit the intrusions of saccades and the number of saccades that are seen while you're fixating is going to decrease as you get older. And we're going to say, therefore, that the, the length of time that you can look at a target is going to increase uh, from the age of four throughout the age of 15 or 16, uh, which shows you changes in, in individual aspects of brain. Now, we also know that when we look at the abilities to, to look at an individual target, um, we're going to see that some people can do it better than others. So right now, you can simply make a little growth chart, you know, where you mark the kid's you know, head on the door or something, but you can actually measure the amount of psychotic intrusions in a fixation task as the child starts to grow. And if you find that after the age of 15 or 16, you still have, you know, decreasing number of saccades as they get older, then maybe that child had decreased uh, rates of myelination or had some other developmental abnormalities. So nice little charts to be able to have uh, for uh, for everyone. I mean, this is pretty darn uh, this is pretty darn cool. Well, so we know that fixation is an exponent of how long you can look at something, right?
So you can look at it and we're going to say that, well, if you can look at it a little bit longer without too many saccades, that's better. So what about the development of the system that allows you to have these saccades um, in a reflexogenic format? We know that when you're having uh, pursuits, if the pursuit mechanism fails, that we need to have reflexogenic saccades, either catch up or backup types of saccades. So these saccades are the quickest movements that uh, the human body can make. So you're looking, when you measure saccadic uh, uh, ocular motor activity, you're looking at the fastest movement possible by a human being. It's almost like we should have the Olympics just for, uh, for saccades. And the saccades are obviously essential. They're fast for a reason. And they can be both reflexogenic, they can be volitional, they can be part of one system or another, they can contaminate fixation, they can allow you to grab up to an individual uh, moving, uh, moving target. So if you look at saccades, they can be generated by anything. As someone touches you lightly, you can saccade over to them. If you hear something, you can saccade uh, over to them. And you can control uh, saccades. And um, for instance, if you are, oh, say you're, you're sitting there eating your sandwich and someone comes and wants to, to talk to you and you see them out of the corner of your eye, uh, you can sort of pretend you don't see them and don't saccade to them so you get caught, right? Uh, so in order to to understand the mechanism of control, we need to understand the mechanism of uh, reflexive activity. And when we look at these, then we're going to look and say, well, uh, reflexes are going to occur without so much cognitive control, whereas the volitional activity are probably going to be associated with a lot of cognitive uh, control. So how do we uh, how do we measure these saccades? I like to do them at the bedside, but we've got saccadometers, we got V and G. Uh, what are we going to look at? Well, one thing we want to do is we want to say how fast can these fastest movements the body can make uh, go. So we want to measure the the peak velocity, but we also want to measure how long it takes for a person to initiate the movement, the latency, and then really important do they get to where they want to be, which is the accuracy. So when we look at all of these different components, we know that the circuitry must be very complex to be able to maintain this diversity. So the cerebellum is involved, the brain stems involved, the parietal cortex involved, the visual striate cortex involved, the frontal eye field. You know, whoa, you just said the whole brain. Exactly, the whole brain is involved, which is why saccades are so rich. Well, what about the velocity of the saccade? This is the, the eyeball coming out of the cannon, uh, the cannonade, and you know the more powder you put in the cannon, the greater the distance the ball will go. And in order to go a greater distance, you're gonna have to have a greater velocity. So we know that the velocity must be determined by the powder, and that powder is located in the brainstem. So mm -hmm. um, these burst neurons and omnipause neurons that would inhibit these burst neurons <coughs> are located in the brainstem. And these areas of um, saccadic velocity control are really uh, integrated with, <coughs> excuse me, other um, sensory motor uh, functions. So what do we know? Well. If you're a kid, like an infant, your saccades are not gonna be as fast as they are when you're older, or they shouldn't be as fast as you are examining the child. Now, when we look at um, velocities, uh, some kids uh, actually can make faster saccades than others are. They express, who really knows? But when we look at um, the majority of studies, the the studies are fairly clear that, you know, and some studies will disagree, but if you do a meta-analysis of these, the, the peak velocity is, is really considered as a, as a continuous uh, variable. So um, 
depending upon who the study, the ones that find faster saccades in kids will find one variable. The ones that find slower will find another uh, another variable. So what can we say? Uh, if we find that the predictability of the target is better, uh, then usually people will have faster saccades. So let me say this a little bit different and try not to confuse you so much in something that's so complex. But if you can imagine that there's a target and you've got a saccade to it, what do you know? Well, you know that most of us are hypometric. If you look at human frailty, we usually fall short and then we have another saccade to correct that. So an individual who is metric, who is on board, is gonna be able to shoot that eyeball a further distance and therefore needs more power and therefore needs more velocity. So that the more accurate the saccade, the greater the predictability of the brain to generate a velocity that is appropriate uh, for the task in hand. That's a beautiful way to think of it, yes? So um, the saccadic velocity is sort of linked to predictability. And it's certainly linked to, dis, to, to dysmetric uh, types of uh, targets or the accuracy of uh, landing the fovea on a target is, is very important. We know it's primarily determined by integration in our cerebellums. Uh, hypometria is, is evident just in little kids and we see it you know, in, in pretty well uh, all of us. Now, uh, adults can generate saccades with slower velocities and increased accuracy, uh, says that, that maybe if you can get to the target, then you can lob the ball a little bit slower. What about the time? to initiate an eye movement. Well, that's a big one for us. We like to look at these, these latencies and the, the latencies really uh, are going to decrease exponentially from when you pop out of uh, the womb till you're about 15 or 16 uh, years of age. And this is very, 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 very important when we look at uh, this activity and this would tell us that this latency must be involved with cognition. We know that it gets worse uh, as, uh, as people get older. Now, when we look at um, initiation of latencies, we tend to think of these as being you know, frontal lobe activities. And, and we look at frontal lobe, there's different aspects of response, of, uh, of cognitive load, if you would, of memory issues, and a variety of other types of, types of activities. And as cognition, grows, our ability to understand things, and our behavior should be better. We shouldn't be yelling and screaming and acting like jerks or throwing a tantrum uh, when the Big Mac doesn't come out exactly on time. Now, when we look at the um, cognitive tasks, there is a, a, a relationship, again, uh, of cognition and psychotic activity, and that relationship, of course, is, uh, is pretty well in, par in parallel. As your uh, cognition increases, your uh, psychotic latency are going to decrease. So that age-related decrease in psychotic latencies are obviously as a consequence of brain activity that is beyond just the eyes itself uh, and probably are gonna reflect a very complex amount of neural processing, that's associated by the continuation of myelination and, and pruning and, and onwards and onwards we go, as well as the, um, the integration of, of cortical and subcortical uh, circuitry. Now, when we look at saccades that have latencies, we're gonna say that, well, we like them to be under 200 uh, degrees, uh, 200 meters per second. So if you have saccades with a latency of, you know, between 80 to 140, uh, we're going to say that they're really super fast. So they're, they're on the express, uh, uh, the express train. So these are faster than the normal latencies. And these are guided uh, primarily by subcortical systems. We can bring them out by having a person uh, have a gap stimulus where we give them 
uh, a stimulus and then we extinguish it and give them another one. So we are going to say for clinical purposes that express saccades are the most reflexive type of eye movement because you don't need the cortical processing. That's really super, super important. Now, when we look at um, express saccades, we're gonna say, these are the fast ones, right? We can bring them out by giving a gap stimulus, but an express saccades can be generated without a gap stimulus. They can be generated as a consequence of somebody who's got abnormalities in uh, cognition or development where um, uh, they don't have the ability to, to uh, I guess, you know, inhibit types of functions. So these individuals that have high numbers of expressed saccades have a higher tendency to make inhibitory errors when you give them conceptual tasks such as the anti-saccade task. You, you give them a target, but you say, don't go there, inhibit this, and go to the other side. And if you can't do this, then you're probably gonna have a problem with fixation. You're probably gonna have a problem uh, with pursuits. But if you if you can't inhibit the prosaccade or the, the desire to go to the first target when you're said that conceptually you not go there and go to the other one, the number of those inhibitory errors is, is not associated with the number of expressed saccades. And this is very important for us. It makes it a little more complex because it says that when you have abnormalities in the development of the volitional saccadic system, that these immaturities are distinct and different from the fixation system. Now, why so? Because when you look at a visually guided saccade that's gonna go from one area uh, to the other, we have got a pretty dynamic activity, or we're gonna say that when you go from one area to the other, you're gonna have a longer latency, and that latency should decrease significantly with age, up to a point that your brain starts to degenerate, then they become long again. Now, there's a weak relationship between age and express saccades, because there's only moderate, you know, modest types of, of changes with the occurrence of uh, of age. Now, um, how can you summarize this? Well, you can do it probably better than I can, but the way I like to look at it is that the express saccades maintain their same uh, latency and velocity throughout the lifespan, whereas the volitional saccades change in their latency. So we've got a lack of developmental change in the express saccadic system, and the express saccadic system suggests that the fixation system that's supported by the areas uh, that are targets to your frontal lobe, the subcortical system, probably matures earlier than the cognitive processes or that fast velocities uh, are not necessarily the best uh, deal. You'll see some people, uh, they'll be around and they go, wow, you know, their velocities are, their latencies are super, super fast. They're like, you know, 120 degrees, that's really cool. They go, well, it's not really cool because it, it probably tells you that they don't have the cognitive processing in there and they're just doing it reflexogenically. And that is a big, big problem. So we've talked a little bit about fixation, a little bit about pursuit, and then reflexogenic types of saccades. All of these, all of these uh, human functions are there uh, in kids, in infancy, and, and in, uh, in, in adolescence. So... What do we know about them? Yeah, they're there, but they, they get better or they should get better um, and as the person matures. However, uh, we, we do know that there's a relationship between human cognition and the development of these, uh, of these beasts. So when do things peak? Well, velocities of saccades peak in adolescence and then the accuracy of saccades are gonna be you know, better uh, by the time you're uh, you're a young kid before adolescence, and you're going to say that uh, with this basic effects, uh, things are going to be pretty good. They must be myelinated and ready to go, or the brainstem myelinates faster. Now, when we look at the development of latency, that takes a little bit more time. So the the tendency to make a reflexive 
uh, saccade because of a protracted latency development has a probability of reflecting a, a system that is much more uh, complex and onwards we go. Okay, well, listen, this has been an hour of talking of this and, and you know, we can talk for, for a lifetime on this stuff. It's just absolutely so rich and exciting. And we'll do more. Uh, and especially for those of you that are going to do physical examination, I'm gonna show you some, some clinical gems that I think will excite you. Uh, they're based upon, uh, man, my almost four decades of doing this stuff. And I'll share with you the, the ways to make you observe better and to be able to understand them. And that, I think, is jewelry that you can't get in a diagnostic package or in a book. Okay, well, uh, hopefully this has been a benefit to you. For those of you that have a long drive, hey, why not? Those of you that don't, get in your car and drive around the block. Okay, thanks so much, and uh, I appreciate you listening to me. Bye-bye.